0: Well, welcome everybody to Encounter Church. Welcome to part four of five of the series that we're in right now called People Matter. And the idea of this series, remember, is that Jesus took time away from teaching, away from from miracle working to show us that people matter to God, you matter to God, no matter what. We're gonna kick it off today with a question. If you've ever had one of those experiences where you were dead sure about something, whatever it is, it could be anything, you're dead sure about About something and you ended up being dead wrong. I would love to hear these stories uh, if you have them and you're like oh man it's so embarrassing Dirk let me tell you about it. Thank you and I'm gonna use that in an upcoming message someday just to give you a heads up. But uh, I I want you also to maybe when you leave here today uh, in your cars on the way home or over lunch this afternoon is to share those stories when you were dead wrong or you were dead sure about something and then you ended up being dead wrong wrong. I'll go first. I'll kick off the embarrassment for me. A lot of you know uh, I've got two kids, a kindergartner at home, and uh, and whenever he leaves the house, he brings along with him Like his whole bedroom, just like everything that's in there. His grandparents actually got him a little fishing vest and he wears and he just like loads it up. He's going to be the only first grader next year to actually have like back problems from like just carrying so much stuff with him all the time. He brings all of his stuff to animals. He calls it soft squad, which is adorable. right? I could just end right there and be like, you're welcome. You know, uh, last week, no joke, he brought, he brought with to, to church a three-foot stuffed penguin into kids ministry. And it's like, hey, he's that kid. You know, and we love it. So he brings everything with him all the time, you know, and, and it's frustrating, but it's him. So, so we're trying to like help him figure this sort of thing out. One time it happened that he couldn't find his favorite stuffed animal in the world. It's this little husky that he cleverly named Dog. And, and he couldn't find it anywhere. So what do we do as parents? We turn the house upside down. We're looking for this thing everywhere. And I'm thinking like, I know where it is. You, you left it somewhere when you took it with you because you take everything with you all the time. So it's like, Where'd you go the last couple days? And he starts listing it off, and he's like, Grandma's house, other grandma's house, friend's pool, out for ice cream. And I'm like, What is your life? in the summertime. Like, that's amazing. But you no, know, so Meyer, Aldi, I mean, everywhere, right? And so, you know, we're calling up these different places. We're driving around town. You know, have you seen this little, little dog, you know, at the store laying on the ground anywhere? Nobody's seen it. Nobody can find it. And I'm like, that's it. He lost it forever. You know, and he's just beside himself. Right? He's in tears and he's sad. And I'm, as a, as a parent, like, looking for the opportunity, you know, to like, maybe this is a teaching lesson. Like, maybe you don't bring everything with you all the time, you know, if you leave it in your bed, it'll be in your bed when you get back. And that's amazing, right? So I'm, and that's not really clicking, right? Because he's just beside himself. Well, a week later, I'm in the closet and I'm pulling down some sheets and they're behind the sheets on the top shelf. So I know it wasn't him. On the top shelf, there's dog with his beady little judgmental plastic eyes looking down on me. I put him there. I don't know if it was like a timeout thing for the stuffed animal or like whatever it was. I can't really remember. But I see that thing and I was dead sure that my kid lost it in the store somewhere because he always brings it around with him wherever he goes. And then I'm seeing this thing up in the closet and I know that I'm dead wrong. And some of you have had those experiences where you're dead sure about something and you turn out to be dead wrong. It's good. Confession is good for the soul. to kind of get those things out there to say, I can be wrong at times. A staff member who will remain nameless, but if you ask me afterwards, I'll totally tell you who it is was telling me about this. He's going like, listen, I was on the phone with Comcast customer support on why why internet isn't working for almost an hour. And I'm so frustrated. And like, no, no, you know, it's your bad product or modem. Or this is your bad service coming into my place. Like, you know, it's your fault. It's not my fault. And almost an hour later, the guy, the customer representative goes, sir, I'm going to ask you one more time. Is the device plugged in and turned on? hey, it's working now. Thanks, click. <laughs> dead sure. And at the same time, dead wrong. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take whatever, whatever those ideas are, and we're actually going to take all of our ideas about who we think God is. And we're going to lift them up before him and say, God, this is who I think you are. This is the kinds of things that I think that you have to honor. And we're going to say, listen, we could be dead sure about those things. If you grew up in church, maybe you have some convictions about who God is and what he's capable of and what he will allow and whatnot. And we're going to hear somebody go up to Jesus who's sure, dead sure, and turns out to be dead wrong. Those of you who maybe didn't grow up in church or maybe you walked away from the whole thing. Maybe you don't believe in God at all. You're just here because somebody invited you out to lunch afterwards. Or maybe you're not here at all. You're watching online and you're dead sure about some convictions as it relates to God. Namely, maybe even that he doesn't exist and you're dead sure about that. And you're not open to the possibility of being dead wrong. And that's what our story is about this morning. Continuing on in the book of John. We come to John chapter 3 about somebody who is so sure it turns out to be so Wrong. I invite you to flip there with me in a paper Bible underneath a chair in the front seat in front of you. John chapter 3. Otherwise in the Bible app, that's cool too. And the words are going to be on the screen behind me. John chapter 3 starts off this way. It starts off in verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. Immediately from the get-go, we get all this information about Nicodemus, right? So he's a Pharisee. So he's uh, typically, if you're reading through the gospels, you start to get this sense early on that, that a Pharisee is like the bad guy. He's one of Thanos' henchmen, right? And the disciples are like the Avengers, like they're the good guys, you know? So it's like super villain, superheroes, kind of stuff like that. And it's, it's like, no, I wanna create kind of a more nuanced picture of Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, he's a religious guy, he's super spiritual guy that's true. But he's just trying to do whatever he can to to help people along in their spiritual journeys. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's good at being spiritual. He's good at being religious. In fact, being spiritual and religious has gotten him a great deal of influence in the world around him at that time. Being spiritual and being religious has created a sense of success around him so that people listen when he starts to speak and you're like oh man that guy must be so annoying to be around right the pharisee is part of this ruling class of people it's like no no no, that's not the impression at all that john an eyewitness to this thing is giving off the impression that he's giving off in the next verse he's going to say that he actually addresses jesus so he's not one of the Pharisees that's just trying to kill Jesus or, or stump him or trap him. He actually goes to Jesus and, and to ask him some questions. And when he goes to Jesus, he addresses him as rabbi, teacher, which is, which is really something if you think about this. Like this guy who's probably advanced in age and status. I mean, he's successful, he's influential, he has all the answers, and he's a professional answer guy about God. And then he goes to this young, maybe late, 20s, early 30s, um, teacher, Jesus, this upstart, kind of from out of nowhere with no formal education. And Nicodemus is the guy who, who looks at Jesus and he says, Rabbi, teacher, because he knows that if you're humble enough, you can learn from anybody. So Nicodemus is the guy who goes to Jesus and says, Teacher, he's not arrogant or haughty, he's there to learn. I mean, Nicodemus, at our best, is all of us, right? He thinks he's got a few of the building blocks, like, set in stone. He thinks he's dead sure on what he believes about God. And he comes up to Jesus, and he's just about to find, listen, he is dead wrong. This is what he says. Now, he came to Jesus, verse 2. He came to Jesus that night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, who has come from God. So we know, like me and the other ruling class, we know that your teacher has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Like these are the nice pleasantries that he's exchanged, that he's offering up to Jesus, right? Because he's a good guy. He's a likable spiritual guy. Nicodemus, he's us at our best. And he comes up to Jesus that night. And there's a lot of questions around the significant, like why John, the eyewitness to this thing, would bother pointing out why it was worth the ink to say that he came to Jesus at night. And different people kind of speculate around this sort of thing, right? Like maybe he was embarrassed or maybe he was ashamed. Maybe he didn't want anybody else to see. And so he does it kind of under the cover of darkness. Other people said, listen, maybe it's just as simple as is he knew Jesus was a busy guy during the day. He was off doing all these miracles and teachings and he knew at night there was just a little more time available to him so he'll catch up with him at night. But listen to me, listen. Every time in the book of John, this, who wrote this, every time he, he says what time of day it is or light or darkness, it kind of like carries over it this spiritual significance, So even even though Jesus died in the middle of the afternoon when it was light out, it was such a spiritually dark, heavy moment, the death of God, that John points out that darkness covered the whole land. And when it was time for the the resurrection of Jesus to come to new life afterwards, it happens in the very first thing in the morning, the break of dawn, when the whole day is up ahead, all this potential for John, light, light, in darkness, day and night, they carry kind of this spiritual depth to it. In John chapter one, he starts off. Listen, there's light and there's dark, and the light shines, and the darkness has never and will never overcome it. There's light and there's darkness, and he points out that, hey, listen, Nicodemus, for all of his answers, for all of his convictions, for all of his questions. There's a kind of darkness that comes over him. And I get that. Don't you? For all of the success that Nicodemus has, people look to him as the guy who has the answers to what? Everything. He's got the answers. He's got the success. He's got the influence. He's got it all. But when he lays his head down at night, and he allows his mind to begin to wander, it wanders in to a dark, doubting place. Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I've missed something along the way. Nicodemus is all of us. I wonder if there's something else out there. And he goes to Jesus at night because, honestly, that's where he is with God right now. And he starts off with the pleasantries. We know, us and my Pharisee buddies, that you're a teacher and that you're speaking godly things. In verse three, Jesus cuts him off. Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are, and he introduces this whole new phrase, unless they are born again. Now, now what I like about this whole thing is that Jesus, as the son of God, he kind of knows the trajectory of the conversation. that Nicodemus is going to come up to him, hey, you know, pleasantries, nice things. And Jesus don't say, oh, wow, I mean, I'm so glad to hear you say that. You're a member of the Jewish ruling council. And like, you're giving me this credit. And like, thank you so much. No, no, Jesus like cuts him off and doesn't even allow him to get to the question, right? Nicodemus didn't ask anything yet. Jesus, he kind of knew the trajectory of this conversation. He's like, you want to know about heaven, don't you? You want to know about this teaching that I've been giving called the kingdom of God. You want to hear it from me. That's why you came. Let's just quit beating around the bush. Let's just cut right to the heart. He, Jesus does like the least Midwestern thing in the world. A guy comes up to him and he's like, hey, so Pleasant pleasantries. He's like, no, no, this is what it's about. You can't get into heaven unless you've been born again. And he's like, whoa, that got deep. I thought we had like an hour and a half of like small group time where we kind of like danced around the issue. You just like went right into it, man. Okay. Follow-up question. And Nicodemus, this is so tremendously awkward, right? Because you've heard born again and it's kind of like, oh, you know, you prayed a prayer, maybe you got baptized or something. But, but Nicodemus, he's hearing it for the first time. And so, he, and so he's taking it literally. Verse four, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter the womb, enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I mean, Nicodemus is like scratching his head, and he's like, okay, the cheese has totally fallen off his cracker. Like, he's done. You know, a couple things. First, yuck. Second, like psychological damage alone on this whole thing is just a head-scratcher. Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And so Jesus provides this answer. Listen to me, in verse five. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water that we know and the spirit. So he's talking about spiritual rebirth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus, how can this be? He asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? So Jesus now, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. This is somewhat tangential, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because I love it so much when I came across it. I'm like, you guys have to hear about this thing. So Nicodemus starts off, it starts off with a compliment, right? And he goes, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, because look at all this amazing stuff. We, who's the we? It's probably like other Pharisees, maybe the Jewish ruling council, the spiritual religious people with all the answers. He's going, Jesus, we know, me and my people, we know about these things that you're a teacher sent from God. So, and then Jesus is like, yeah, you people don't even understand this, but we testify to what we have seen. Question, who's the we? that Jesus is talking about? Why does he flip to the plural? It's not like I testify to it, he goes we. And I would venture a guess to say he's not talking about he and the disciples because they are clueless about everything. They're just like watching, right, with like the popcorn GIF, just like okay, we'll see how this thing goes. Hope it doesn't get us into trouble. Like they don't know. It says like eight times in the book of John that the disciples saw and believed. It's like I thought you did that like seven times already. No, no, no. this thing is like they're still kind of getting it little by little. Who's the we? Jesus is talking about, he throws it down. Most commentators about this believe that the we that he's referring to is none other than the we of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So so Nicodemus is like, yeah, you know, us religious types, you know, we'll give you this. Like, you're a teacher and you're amazing. Um, But I've got some questions and Jesus is like, yeah, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit testify to what we have seen. It's like got this hint of sarcasm to it. It's snarky, but like just the right amount of snark, right? Because he knows, who, he knows what he is talking about, and he's establishing his credibility so that verse 12, we get Jesus continuing on. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven heaven, the son of man. That's a reference from the Old Testament uh, prophecy of Daniel, the Messiah, the Savior, was called the son of man. And it's also Jesus' favorite term to like reference himself as that Messiah, the son of man. So no one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the son of man, that's me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is establishing for himself and for all of us his own credibility here. And he's going, Nicodemus, you are so sure, you are dead sure of what it means to be good and righteous and holy, what it means to be good enough in God's eyes. But Nicodemus, you are so dead sure. But Nicodemus, how could you be You've never seen it. You don't know what's out there, how could you? No one that you know has ever seen what's out there. It's kinda like this, right? If you, if you take us in this room right now, these four walls, this box that we're in, right? And there's no doors, there's no windows, there's no anything, it's just this. This is all you've seen ever. And we as a church, or we as a community, we could speculate and we could guess about what's outside of those doors. Uh, we, we could make these uh, speculations say, I think, you know, it's maybe nothing out there. Maybe it's vacuum. Maybe it's the abyss, just darkness everywhere. Maybe it's space, whatever that is. W- maybe, maybe on the other side of those doors there's rainbows, unicorns, and a grassy plain. No one knows. And that's the point. No one knows because we've not seen it. But if you imagine for just a minute that somebody opens up one of those doors and walks in. And all of us turn to look at the person and say, What's out there? I mean, chances are we would believe whatever that person told us because because they've seen it, because they've been there. And Jesus is going, you want to know about the kingdom of God? You want to know about heaven? You want to know about this place where God himself is fully present and fully known. I've been there and I can tell you about it most importantly for Nicodemus, I can show you how to get there. And he introduces this concept of being born again. And it was a radical new idea for Nicodemus and for the people that day. It was a radical new idea with two radical concepts underneath it. The way to God. How good is good enough. Being born again, this radical concept, involves seeing ourselves as a radical sinner. I mean, not just like a, like a little sinner. <laughs> not just like somebody that needs a little course correction at times. Just a little, a little nudge. But just full-on realization that I am what's wrong with the world around me. A full-on not seeing it in somebody else's eye, but seeing it in my own. There was a, uh, there was a famous uh, theologian and Christian philosopher in, uh, in England, in London, uh, around the turn of the 20th century. And he had this huge uh, following. He was quite the influencer of his time, named G.K. Chesterton. And somebody published something in the London newspaper that said, what's wrong with the world and like listed out all kinds of like woes and you know, problems with the world, which on the one hand is like a little comforting to know, like these questions aren't just the first time anybody has a, this has been going on for a hundred years. At the same time, it's a little depressing because it's like, this has been going on for a hundred years. We've been asking what's wrong with the world. But anyway, somebody asked these questions. What is wrong with the world? And everybody knows who this guy is. GK Chesterton, he's very, very famous, huge influencer. He takes out an ad in the paper and simply writes two words. He says, I am. And he's hugely respecting. He signs his name, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Right? Because he knows, he knows that everything that's wrong in the world, in his world, it starts not with somebody else, not, not out there, not my neighbor, not my friend, not my boss, not somebody else. It starts with me. He gets this radical concept that I am a radical sinner. He goes on to say, listen, the gospel, the word of God, this is not a tool for my neighbor's condemnation. This is a tool for my own self-reflection. Look at the mirror. This is what's wrong. I am, I am a sinner, a radical sinner in need of God's grace. One time I was hanging out with, um, um, with a group of people and I was sitting on my back, uh, deck and we were just chatting and things like that. And they knew, right, obviously that I'm a, I'm a pastor and, and, you know, and they just, in a moment of honesty uh, said, you know, I, I, I guess I'd consider myself a Christian, but I don't feel like I'm all that bad. You know, like I go to church and I pray and I try to do the right thing at times. Like, how do I know? I know I'm supposed to see myself as a sinner, but like, I just don't, I just, I guess I don't see it if I'm being honest. You know it kind of like t- took me back a little bit because i wasn't just i guess expecting it from this context and i i'll admit i didn't have a very good answer at the time but i've had some time to think about it <laughs> and so i said listen if i would have that conversation again this is the deal this is the deal that, that jesus christ and keeping him at the center and at the highest place if you just imagine him as a, as a beach ball, a big one, dropping into the pool of your life, it should displace and it will displace every other thing in that pool. It will displace your job, your neighborliness, your relationship with your boss, with your wife, with your kids. It will, by definition, displace everything else, it all gets pushed to the periphery because he's that big. Everything else exists in that orbit, him as the defining point. If Jesus and your commitment to him has not displaced every single thing or element or relationship in your life, then we have no choice but to rest on the simple fact that I guess G.K. Chesterton was right, that I am a radical sinner in need of a radical savior. And not just like a good moral teacher along the way, but, but no more, a truly a savior. Listen, this is, this is a problem. Like, like, so often, we run into people, right? I'm just kind of like venting right now. It's cheaper than therapy. But we run, into, we run into the issue of people universally, whether they're Christians or not, or anybody who's like, Jesus was a fantastic moral teacher. We love Jesus. You know, he made, he made such a difference in the world. And if we could only pattern our lives a little bit more like him, maybe everything, the whole world would be different. And that's probably true, except for the part about him being a good moral teacher. Jesus was a terrible moral teacher. He makes an awful paradigm a moral teacher to live up to. Let me, let me tell you why, okay? It's not just because he claimed to be God and there's that sort of thing, but he was an awful moral teacher because when we take our lives and our ambitions and our hopes, even our genuine hope and desire to like aspire to him as far as moral excellence goes, when we take our life and we like start to match it up against his, it will destroy you when you see how good he was and is, when you start to appreciate the life of self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-deprivation, self-discipline, when you start to see how his whole being, with every calorie he took in, expending it on building up the kingdom of God, when you start to see his commitment, not only to his friends and neighbors, but also to his enemies, enemies. And you start to appreciate not only his life lived constantly before the face of God, living for him most of all above everything else, but also not only his life, but his death. And you start to see how he was tortured and humiliated, willingly being cut off from his heavenly father and a relationship that he has known intimately since before the beginning of time. And he did that just so he could call you an adopted brother or sister, and you start to compare your life up against his, in the words of Timothy Keller, it will crush you into the ground. It's not inspiring. It's depressing when we see how far we have to go to live up to him. The closest thing that I can think of, and this is not gonna be a great analogy because there isn't a great analogy, but like the closest thing that I can think of that, of how we measure up is a little ways back, I started running and I'm a type three on the Enneagram. And if any of you know, that means like the achiever. And I get really weirdly competitive at kind of bizarre things at times. And so this is like the thing that I just took on. I'm like, I'm going to go full in on this thing. And I'm going to like read the blogs and like figure out like nutrition, fueling, and all this sort of stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to do like everything I can to get like faster and faster, faster. I'm even going to try to like lose some weight so I can like get even faster. And I'm going to do those exercises where you run really, really fast. And then you run kind of slow for a little while. They're called fart licks, but I'm not going to say that because you can't say it without giggling a little like a child or middle schooler, right? But I'm going to do everything that I can to get as fast as I can. I start to like look at my times as they go from like eight minutes something to like seven minutes something. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And I start to think maybe, you know, I just had a birthday recently, 35, thanks very much. Um, which means that I'm in now like the 35 to 40-year-old bracket, right? So I'm like, hey, if I enter a race, I'm running as a, I think of myself as a young man against the old men, right? So I'm like, okay, it's not like Riverbank or something where people come from all over the world, but maybe one of these little races that nobody has heard about, like the Cutlerville Days Parade kind of thing. Like, I could, I could enter one of these Maybe I could place. I mean, maybe not a trophy, but I could get like a gift certificate to a running store where I can only buy jelly beans with the $10. Like, I might be able to place in the top three, top four. Wouldn't that be amazing? And so I'm like, working really hard at this thing, trying as best as I possibly can, giving it Enneagram three, everything that I've got. And I look up the times of the finisher last year of this same somewhat obscure race. And I'm not joking every single one of them in the top tens, like the first page that loaded, in my old man category, 35 to 40, it wasn't in the eight minutes a mile. It wasn't in the seven minutes. It wasn't in the six-minute range. It was in the five-minute range. And I'm looking at this thing going, I could dedicate the next four years of my life to this thing, and I still will never be able to make the, the first page of the finishers of my old man category. I'm like looking at this of people who have like actually dedicated their lives and now I'm going, it's too late. I have too far to go. Ah, there's no way I could ever work hard enough. I'm staring at this page on my phone and the realization hits me. This is not inspiring. This is depressing. I'll never measure up to that, and when we take our lives and we put them up against Jesus, he doesn't make a good moral teacher because he's too good. He's far too good. But the good news is that you don't need just a good moral teacher. The good news is the news is worse. The good news is that radical sinners like us need a radical savior. Somebody to entirely make us new again with new hopes, new dreams, new ambitions, new goals, new priorities, new relationships, new habits, entirely new born again, a fresh start. And that's the message that Jesus came to bring Nicodemus who was so sure That all he needed was a little course adjustment and then he could perfect his life. And Jesus said, I don't think so. You need much more. You need to cut much deeper. And Jesus wraps it up with these words from verse 16. The next line, he says, listen, this is how it works. You wanna get in? You wanna know how to get born again? He goes, it's simple. For God, my father so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He kind of brings it up and saying, like, listen, we all know the question that will be on our minds and hearts at one point, if it isn't already, that we all have a perish date. Or as my wife's uncle, who's in the funeral business, I was just talking to him, he says they don't perish in his world, they expire. Which kind of makes me think of old yogurt in the back of the fridge. But nevertheless, it's true. We all have an expiration date, which we will think about. It will be in the front of our minds at one point or another. And he says the key to surviving your perish, your expiration date, is believing in. Believe in. See, most of the time, a lot of times, with us Nicodemuses, we want to believe that. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that. All of his teachings are true. Believe that there's a God out there and that we can love him and that he knows us. We want to believe that. We want to believe that that we could sit on this stool and it'll hold me. I believe that. I believe that I could sit here and it'll keep me up. I believe that I could sit here and put two of my kids, one on each knee, and it'll hold my family on this stool and anything else that I could put on my lap. I believe that. But that's not what Jesus came. That's not what he brought with him. The teaching that he brought with him is that it's not good enough to simply believe that because even the demons, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He goes, no, 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 you need to believe in or literally believe into. And a lot of scholars believe that this is the first time in the Greek language of that dialect that those two words, believe and into, literally, We're ever mashed up against one another. This is an entirely new concept a believing into, a trusting that it's not good enough just to believe that. As Jesus is looking for these words, he goes, "No, no, no, you have to actually believe in and trust the weight of the stool. Pick your feet up off the ground and anything that you care about to put it also on your lap, A kid, one on each knee, and saying, I'm going to trust my family believing into Jesus. That he will hold me and he will support me. Most of the time we look at this and we go, I just want to believe that and call it good. Because to trust him with my time, to trust him with my money, to trust him with my selection of movies or TV, to trust him with my internet browsing, to trust him with my relationship, who I date and who I don't, to trust him with who I live with and who I don't, to trust him, it's just asking way too much. So I just want to believe that and keep him over there. And Jesus, you can almost hear him and go, like, are you sure? You sure that's what you want? And you're saying, like, yes, I'm dead sure. That's all I want. Jesus, I just want to believe that and keep you over there. I don't want to actually trust you with this thing. I just want to believe that. And Jesus goes, you have to be dead sure about that. Because someday, someday you'll be called before God. And listen, I hope that you're right. But also... Jesus says, that's not the message that I brought. Because the message that I brought is the distance between heaven and hell. It's roughly 18 inches. The difference between our head and our heart. It's not good enough just to believe that, Jesus says. You gotta be sure, because the message I brought is a message to believe in. church, this all builds up to the simple question, are you born again? And if you think that you are, I hope you're sure. What are you trusting him with? I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we ask that, uh, that you convict us, you challenge us in a way that only you know how to trust you with more of our lives. God, you've given us this, uh, this word that, that it's not enough just to believe that you died and rose again from the dead. God, that you're asking us to trust you with our whole lives, trust you with our relationships, trust you with our very being, God. We ask your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts to give us the courage to sit down and rest in you for the first time, Lord, or for the first time in a very long time. Help us to rest into you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.